This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program, regardless of how you're watching us, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Periscope. We appreciate you making us a part of your day. We try really hard to make sure that we don't waste any of your time. And in keeping with that, let's go ahead and get started with the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. We are, of course, going to be giving you an update on the situation with the protest, everything that that happened here in Montgomery last night. But we are going to, as we've been doing for the past couple months, at least give you a, a quick rundown of the numbers when it comes to the virus. So we'll go ahead and do that with the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Now, you may notice here, and this is something that is a little bit odd, you may notice here that since they've switched up the graphics, since they've updated the website, that right now it says that there is no data on the testing, so we'll have to kind of forego that. I'm guessing it's some kind of glitch in the system or an issue with collection it seems unlikely to me that they have stopped testing altogether. They probably just haven't been able to report the numbers for whatever reason. Like I said, they just updated the website. They're probably kind of working through that. And and if their website design is anything like my website design, there's quite a few bugs that they'll, it'll take them some time to really completely hash out. But you will see there that there are now 18,354 confirmed cases There are 649 deaths and 1,879 hospitalizations in the Yellowhammer State. Again, I think that the whole thing with not having data on testing is probably just a recording or a error with the the technology side of it and being able to have that on the website. It's probably not that they're not testing. So we'll give you an update on that one hopefully tomorrow hopefully they have data for us to run off of but in the meantime let's go ahead and look at the numbers for the new cases now you may notice from looking at the new cases here that the past two days have been a substantial drop-off now yesterday you may recall that i somewhat dismissed the fact that we only had about 50 new cases because the website was down for a little bit and it's very likely that some of the cases, especially since there was such a high number of cases on the day before Sunday, which is atypical of a Sunday, that probably a lot of those cases actually should have been for the, the next day on Monday. And the fact that Sunday cases tend to be pretty low, that would put us pretty much in the range of normal. Well, that excuse doesn't exist for today, and we're still under the 300 mark, which is a very good sign, especially when you consider that in this state we have had such a high number of cases, and and like I've said a thousand times by this point, we knew that that was going to happen. We knew that your cases were going to go up. We understood that that was going to happen when everything started to open up, when people started moving around more. That was always the plan, even back when the shutdown started. But what this shows and, and what looking at this really does give us a sense of, of that kind of starting to level off is that, granted, today could be an outlier. But if we didn't have a ton of cases yesterday and we have even fewer today, Uh, Again, if you attribute most of what happened to Sunday, if you kind of split the difference there and assume that at least, you know, about two thirds of that probably really happened on Monday, then if you look at the numbers and understand that aspect of it, 
probably what is going on with the fact that we are under 300 is that the ca- this is an indication of the total cases starting to drop. By the way, this is something that would be consistent with the patterns that we saw in other places, like our neighbor Georgia and Florida, who tended to open up a little bit faster than us, and by the way, had spikes in their cases as well right before they started dropping down. And I think the fact that we just now entered June, that it is sweltering hot outside. I mean, I just walked, granted, if you've not been on Faulkner's campus, you may not know exactly the distance here, but I walked from the, the new men's hall over to the uh, the student activity center because I had to pick up my mail. And uh, just that short walk, I was already not like in a, a full workout sweat, but, but I worked up a sweat just making that short uh, journey. So I'm guessing... The weather is playing a pretty significant role here. The southern states seem to have been hit less hard than some of the northern states right now, and, and that leads to the idea that lots of sunshine, high humidity, that kind of thing, that would suggest that that research that the coronavirus doesn't survive as well in those conditions are probably correct. And so with all that being said, the fact that we have lower cases is probably just a reflection Upon that, that we did have that initial spike when everybody started moving out and and started moving around and coming in contact with one another in the Yellowhammer State when that first started, but our overall cases are going to start dropping. Now, maybe this was the first sign of that, or maybe we wind up going back to about what uh, we would expect, uh, somewhere in the 400-ish range or, or even higher, and we continue But that seems unlikely based on the patterns that we've seen out of Georgia and Florida. I would be very surprised if if at the end of the week, if we do a seven-day review, that this previous seven days was more than the seven days prior to it. But, you know, that's why we do the seven-day review. We'll find that out when we come to it. Again, there were no new tests, so we're just going to skip that one for today. Let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. So these are the new hospitalizations in the state of Alabama, there are only 23 today. So again, we we've dropped off on hospitalizations as well. Our hospitalizations have continued on a downward trend. We had three days that were pretty significant last week, but we've been in a downward trend pretty much ever since then. And the numbers are starting to to dip down into a more comfortable range for us, which again coincides with the dip in overall cases that we were just looking at. And the more that this thing continues to go on, the more likely it is that the Yellowhammer State is is going to wind up seeing exactly what Georgia and Florida saw, which is about two-ish, three-ish weeks after their official shutdown, even though I think the official shutdown doesn't really make nearly as big a difference as what the people actually decide on their own, that we see a dip in hospitalizations as well as the dip in cases that we've already possibly started to see. And then right before we we get to the next story, let's go ahead and look at overall deaths. Really good day for this. We only had five new ones today. We had zero yesterday. Uh, Again, maybe because of the data and and not having that available that you could split the difference and, and say that Sunday really should be split between two days. That's probably fair. But either way, we're continuing to see death rates that are just nowhere near predicted levels. And the fact that they are so low is a pretty good sign that we're headed in the the right direction. And by the way, uh, looking at this data, 
the the death rate has really never spiked ever since the official opening when early on in the month of May the state of Alabama decided to open up we still did not have a really significant increase in deaths it stayed pretty much stable and we have yet to see an increase since we've been doing this since we've been looking at our 7-day averages and our 14-day averages they've continued to go down consistently so it doesn't appear as though that's something to worry about right now. So all of the numbers are dropping. Now, granted, we wish that the number on testing was increasing, but that hasn't happened. Right now, every single category is in a downward trend, and for the most part, that is a very, very good sign. So let's go ahead and jump into the news going on right here in the capital city. A big one and something that is incredibly iconic Famous, infamous, regardless of, of what side you stand on the debate that has been really played out in the state of, the, sorry, the city of Montgomery for some time now with Robert E. Lee High School. The Robert E. Lee statue that sits in front of the entrance to Lee High School has actually been removed. Now, the protesters did not remove it. What happened is last night when there was some, uh, some contentious things going on in, in in conjunction with what's going on in the rest of the country in response to the death of George Floyd and, and riots and protests happening all over the country. We had a little bit of that last night in Montgomery. Of course, there were demonstrators that were downtown, but apparently there were also people that went down to Robert E. Lee High School and tried to tear down the statue. They damaged the statue, and, and it's going to need some repairs. And so seeing this, what happened is authorities did show up from the city and they took the statue down and apparently have placed it in storage, according to our news partners at WSFA. So a couple things on that. MPD did confirm that the suspects that tried to, 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 to destroy the statue, they are in custody and the statue has been safely placed in storage. Uh, so... On all of that, I, I do want to say, though, I think that when we're looking back through history, it's also a weird thing that today just happens to be a state holiday for Jefferson Davis. Uh, I, I saw that on my feed earlier today. I was kind of skimming through and doing preparation. So uh, Jefferson Davis actually has a day dedicated to him, and apparently that is today. I wasn't even aware of that. But... I do find it very odd that especially for somebody like Jefferson Davis, who was a pretty open racist, uh, definitely somebody that believed in white supremacy and, and basically won the presidency of the Confederacy running on that platform. Frankly, I find it a little odd that the state continues to have a state holiday. I think you can make a solid argument, and I've made these arguments before. That when it comes to something like a statue, a monument, a memorial, that even if you don't agree with everything that the person does, even if you think that there are even severe moral flaws with the individual, I like the statue staying there because that is a preservation of history, and I'm a big history guy. And I think that what has been happening in recent days with the Confederate memorial there in Lynn Park in Birmingham, defacing the Robert E. Lee statue here at Lee High School... I think that that's detestable. It's something that we don't do in a polite society. If you do have a problem with it, you go through proper legal channels. But nonetheless, re regardless, putting all that aside, 
you could make the argument that even if you think that the people depicted in these are, are horrible, evil people and they should not be honored, you can still make the argument that there is historical significance and value gained by leaving those things and letting them stand. I don't think you can really do that with a holiday. I, maybe it's just a difference of opinion, but I really wouldn't have an issue with the state of Alabama just completely foregoing and, and no longer celebrating Jefferson Davis's, I believe it's his birthday is what we celebrate. Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. I don't really see any reason for us to continue that tradition. There are some things that I think should have been done away with. Uh, for example, flying the rebel flag, not the Confederate flag. The, that's actually a different flag. But flying the rebel flag over the state capitol, that was a weird thing. I didn't see the significance of it. Um, and, and that's something that's ongoing. I really didn't have a problem with them taking that down and removing that back in the 90s. And that really wasn't a big deal, especially when you consider the history of it, is they specifically started putting that up as a tradition. They started doing so specifically in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement. It was basically a middle finger to the people that were involved in the Montgomery bus boycotts, that kind of thing. And so I had no problem with us ending that straight tradition. I thought that that was probably the right thing to do. Uh, I, I'd say, I, I won't even add the qualifier of probably. I think it was the right thing to do. But in this case, Robert E. Lee High School is something that has been such a staple, such a part of Montgomery history. My grandmother is actually a graduate of Robert E. Lee High School, and, and a lot of people in the area remember that. And, and the thing about Robert E. Lee is he's nothing like Thomas Jefferson, or Thomas Jefferson, uh, Jefferson Davis, I'm sorry. Uh, we were talking about Thomas Jefferson yesterday. He's nothing like Jefferson Davis in the sense that not only was he not a white supremacist, he was actually an abolitionist. He believed that it was not only inevitable that slavery would eventually be done away with, but he also said that he believed that it ought to be done away with. And he specifically cited the scripture and God as the reason why he believed that it should be done away with. He believed that it was ultimately a moral evil. Those are using his words. He described it that way. And so a lot of the ire that a depiction of Robert E. Lee has, it's really completely unjustified. You can make the argument that he was fighting for the wrong side, okay. You can make the argument that he should have joined the Union and left Virginia, which, by the way, was the breaking point. Robert, Lee, Robert E. Lee was not somebody that was an open advocate for secession. But once Virginia did secede, he didn't want to face his neighbors and his children in battle. And so you can see the kind of situation that he was in. You could make the argument that maybe he should have had the moral courage and he should have gone with the Union anyway. Okay, I'm open to having that discussion, but trying to depict him as some kind of evil villain that, that should draw people's ire and is too controversial to have a statue of him or a high school named after him, that I don't get. I really don't. There's really no reason, and I think a lot of the anger at a depiction of Robert E. Lee at Robert E. Lee High School it's just completely misdirected, and the people that, that have that, most of them, maybe not all of them, but the vast majority of them are woefully misguided and misinformed when it comes to history. But the weirdest part of this is, despite the fact that the statue, which is sort of a, uh, a hallmark of the city of Montgomery, something that people know about, especially in the area, the fact that it was damaged 
It seems odd considering that our own mayor, Mayor Stephen Reed, said that there was nothing but peaceful protests last night. And so this is Mayor Reed playing that up on WSFA this morning. We know that there were some businesses that were um, targeted and were hit by people who were not connected to any protests or anything along those lines. Some have been apprehended. Some we have very strong evidence and very strong lead on uh, where they may be. And so um, it was good from one standpoint of, of having peaceful uh, and purposeful protests. Okay, so peaceful, purposeful protests. So I, you know, we had peaceful protests. I mean, yeah, there were people trying to destroy a statue, and we now have people in custody for doing so. We know that there were businesses that were vandalized. We know that we had. Uh, for example, a, a Wells Fargo ATM that was vandalized and robbed, which, by the way, the exact same thing, specifically with Wells Fargo, they were vandalized last night in Birmingham. A flag was actually burned at that bank, and, and so it's a, it's a pretty clear-cut copycat crime. We don't typically have mobs of people busting into ATMs and, and drawing them out. And another thing, and we don't know if this was in any way connected to the protest, but if not, it seems like an awfully big coincidence that over on Norman Bridge Road, we had 10 cars that were set ablaze, which, again, is something that has been very indicative, sort of a calling card of these protests. So it seems like an odd coincidence that when all this was happening, that you had a lot of the other things that have happened in other cities that were associated with people that were protesting now I use that term very loosely because I do agree with Reed on this. Because he's trying to categorize everything that happened that was not peaceful as not connected with the protest. You heard him do that just a second ago. He's like, well, th there were things that happened and businesses that were targeted and looted and broken into, but those were not in any way connected with the protesters. Well, if you're using that standard, then Atlanta had nothing but peaceful protest. If you're using that standard, then Dallas had nothing but peaceful protest. Like, you, you can't just wave a magic wand and say, well, okay, all, all of the incidents that were not peaceful, we're just going to go ahead and say that they weren't connected with the protesters, or we can't... That, that's naive and stupid. Now, granted... Montgomery did not have a uh, riots that any even came close to the levels that we saw in places like Birmingham, like Huntsville, or actually, I don't know. I think we were pretty even to Huntsville, but like other major cities that we've seen on the news the past few days. So that's good. That's a point in his favor. And, and you know, he should be talking about that and commending the citizens and the police chief and all of that, which he did in this interview. But don't sit there and BS me and tell me, oh, it was nothing but peaceful protests. But, well, the reason you're saying that is because you're discounting every example of the non-peaceful protest. That's absurd. I mean, that would be like saying, well, you know, the Bible... It doesn't, at any point, does it ever say that killing is wrong? And then the guy comes back with, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, I'm not counting the Ten Commandments. Oh, okay, well, you're, then you're just picking and choosing. And so it is a little bit ridiculous. I don't want to come down too hard on Mayor Reed on this because I think that the spirit of what he was trying to say is probably more or less correct in the sense that uh, we didn't have it nearly as bad as a lot of other cities and it's not as bad as it could have been. 
but the the fact that he's trying to throw on the rose-colored glasses and saying nothing but peaceful protest, no, that's not quite right either. There were clearly incidents that were at least associated with protesting in other places of the country that happened and happened to coincide with the night that they happened with the protest in Montgomery. That's not a coincidence. You can't just write that off. The car thing, I don't know, maybe since that one's under investigation, maybe it turns out an engine just exploded and it happened to catch the other nine cars surrounding it on fire. Okay, maybe that kind of seems unlikely, but maybe that happened. But just looking at it and and just with a blanket statement saying that there were no there were no incidents of the protests not being peaceful if you just discount all of the violent incidents, I'm I'm sorry, that's that's just dumb. You you can't cherry pick like that. And this is Mayor Reed later on in that same interview. Uh this one's a little bit odd because listen to the way that he says it and, and what he's kind of implying here. It almost sounds like it almost sounds like he's blaming police officers in other cities that were showing up in riot gear. He's accusing them of somehow escalating the situation. I want to commend Chief Finley. I want to commend our police department, uh, those men and women, for de-escalating the situation by not uh, appearing in riot gear and by not using milita- militarized tactics, uh, military tactics, um, against you know unarmed protesters. So I think that from that standpoint, we were okay, and we hate that any business gets robbed or any business is targeted. But overall, we we did not have the um, type of fallout that we could have and that we've seen in some other cities, and I think that's because of the preparation and coordination of local, state, county, and federal authorities. Now, on the one hand, being the very libertarian-minded guy that I am, I do understand there being value in police not doing things that would specifically escalate a situation. I don't see any reason that police should show up, for example, in riot gear unless absolutely necessary. And since it doesn't seem to have been necessary, then it's a good thing that we didn't pull it out there. If nothing else, just from a taxpayer standpoint that we did. I don't know if it would have been more expensive to do that or not. I'm really not sure. But the fact that we didn't have to roll that out is a good thing. Here's where I get a little bit antsy about what he's saying, though. It almost sounds like he's saying that the reason that other cities had it worse than us is because police showing up in riot gear basically provoked them to doing stuff like that. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. There are times where police officers do use military tactics, show up in military-style vehicles, and show up in SWAT gear where it is completely unnecessary, and I've been critical of them for that. Just a few weeks ago with the whole shutdown thing, you remember that they had uh, this happening in Texas, where they showed up in a military-style vehicle with a whole bunch of officers to keep people from getting a haircut. That was insane. And, And there was no reason, there was no call for that. But at the same time, let's say that that, situation had escalated and then you had a shootout between the cops and the people getting their haircut or something like that. 
well, the cops would not have been at fault for doing that. The, the cops are not the reason that those people decided to do that. And it seems as though what he's suggesting is, oh, what, once protesters see cops in riot gear, they just go crazy. And then they automatically turn it into a violent protest and it, because he's saying we had protests that were not as severe as other places. And the reason that we didn't is because our cops did not escalate the situation by showing up in riot gear. Have y'all seen, and I, I wish that I had gone ahead and pulled it now in retrospect, have you seen the video of the sheriff of Flint, Michigan, where he goes up there and he says, look, we, we want to tell you that we're with you, that the, the guy that was George Floyd's killer, he is not somebody that represents us, and so, you know what, we'll walk with you. And, I mean, the guy actually put down his baton and marched with the protesters, which I thought was a fantastic moment. It's a great moment of unity. It was There was something that was uniquely American about it. I thought that was a great thing. But do you notice that he and his officers are, you know, in riot gear when that happens? Probably the best example out of this past several days that we have of police officers and protesters being able to come together and to be able to lay their differences aside. That's probably the best example that we have. And yet the cops were in riot gear when that took place. I, Mayor Reed's logic is just foreign to me there. The idea that the sight of a police officer in riot gear automatically escalates the situation, that's just dumb. I mean, I don't think that they should use stuff like that unless they feel that they need to. I prefer it not being a heavy-handed approach. I'm with them on that, but uh, the reason that it makes me a little skeptical, the, the reason that it bothers me is because, A, it kind of denotes that he's blaming the police officers for the behavior of the rioters, which is completely wrong. And on top of that, it makes me think, well, God forbid this happened, but what if we did need police officers to show up in SWAT gear last night? Like, what if the protest had turned violent? What if we had all kinds of mess going on downtown and, and people rioting and looting? Would Mayor Reed say, no, no, we don't need to have cops down there in riot gear because that's just going to provoke them? Is Mayor Reed willing to sacrifice the safety of our police officers and not give them the equipment that they need because he's afraid that that would cause the crowd to react in that way and say, no, no, if you just don't show up in riot gear... Well, then the the protesters, they're just not going to not going to be violent. I hope that's not the case. I hope I'm not reading too much into this. I know that I've been pretty hard on Mayor Reed lately, and I'm not I'm not trying to single him out or target him. But I heard that. And I was like, I, I can't let that go. I can't just dismiss that because I don't want people getting the idea that Mayor Reed is just not going to go there. It's the same thing with the, the nuclear option. I don't want to use it. I don't think it ever should be used. But I also don't want people saying, look, just so you know, we're never going to use that because that defeats the purpose of having the thing. I want our cops to be safe. I want our protesters to be safe. And I want the protest to be peaceful. But I cannot abide Mayor Reed, first of all, lying to people about how peaceful they were by trying to be like, oh yeah, those incidents of violence that you heard about, well, those weren't really protesters. Don't BS me like that. And then on top of that, don't blame cops in other cities showing up in riot gear because they're trying to protect themselves and the citizens of that city and saying that they're the reasons that this escalated. And granted, that was implied. And I hope I'm not reading too much into that, but 
just a, a really bad way to word that if that's not what Mayor Reed actually meant there. Um, because if it is unavoidable, police definitely should be in riot gear. That's what it's there for. They shouldn't show up in it unless they feel that they need it. But at the same time, I don't want people afraid to use it because they're worried that that's going to send people into a blind rage or something like that. That's that's ridiculous. Um, if what we saw last night in the capital city was the worst of it, honestly, we got off pretty easy. And, and that's a good thing. And, and that was the overall theme of what Mayor Reed was saying in that interview. But I don't know. Those two points are just really hard for me to get over. Uh, another big incident that happened a little bit north of us in Montgomery, our, our interstate brothers and sisters up there, uh, just a short drive up I-65, uh, Lynn Park caught it pretty rough. And one of the things that they did is they actually removed the Lynn Park Confederate monument in order to, I don't know if they're just keeping it safe or they removed it because they're planning on removing it. And there's a couple reasons you, you need to know the backstory to understand why there is some question about that. So the other day, attorney general, Steve Marshall, the attorney general of Alabama, he actually came out in a statement and said that if the city of Birmingham, which is already city council voted to remove that monument, even though it's technically illegal and they, they did put up a law in the state of Alabama that says that city has to has to ask permission from the state before they can remove it. So there the the contention for the longest time was because that is the law and that is the law of the state of Alabama that Birmingham could not remove that monument even though their city council and their mayor had already approved it. So what happened the other night when it was attacked is basically they did the same thing that the city of Montgomery did with the Robert E. Lee statue, which is take that monument and put it in storage. But since the city council and the mayor have, I'm sure, not going to be in a hurry to restore it, there is some question as to whether or not they're actually going to put it back in the first place. And Attorney General Marshall did come out with that statement yesterday saying, well, they could theoretically remove it, but there would be a $25,000 fine because that's how the law reads. So if I'm the city of Montgomery, $25,000 is a significant amount of money. And I don't think that they should take it down. I, we had that whole conversation on the show yesterday, but would it really be a surprise to anybody if they just said, you know what, we'll pony up the 25,000 just as a way to get rid of it. Frankly, that would not surprise me even in the least if that winds up being what happened. So since Attorney General Marshall has, has said that, and that's basically been how he's going to enforce this, I would just be pretty surprised if the city of Montgomery... Now, I think that they're going to try to get away with it. I think what they're going to do is they're going to, to keep it down and they're just continuously say, oh, well, we're just trying to keep it from being defaced or whatever. And then, you know, a few months go by and finally Attorney General Marshall says, look, you got to put it up at some point. The riots have been over for a while now. I could be wrong. I think that's how this whole episode is going to play out. But to the overall debate about whether or not cities and townships and whatnot in the South should even have monuments to the Confederacy or Confederate generals or prominent Confederate figures one common argument that has been used over and over again is, well, but it should be in a museum, which frankly, I think is, is a pretty common 
talking point for people that don't actually mean it. And I said that when that talking point was was brought up, because I do think that there is value, like I said, in preserving history and preserving it right there out in the open where everybody can see it. But what's going on here and what we've seen over the past few days transpire is proof that they really didn't mean that. Because if you have a mob of people trying to tear down a statue, they ain't going to put it in a museum. They want it gotten rid of. And that was sort of the, the common talking point. Well, okay, have these things, have your rebel flag, have your historical documents or whatever, but just keep it in a museum, and that's where it really belongs anyway. Look, we all know that was a load of bunk. Because these people have a disdain for that, and they think that these things ought to be destroyed. And if you don't believe me, rioters the other night in Virginia actually broke into a Confederate museum owned by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And they wound up destroying all kinds of things, including General Stonewall Jackson's flag that was made for him. By the way, another person that was a general on the Confederacy that we have no indication that he was pro-slavery, never owned a slave, actually went to church with black people, defied Confederate laws, teaching black children to read in his church. He actually broke the law to do that, uh, teaching them, no, not teaching them to read, teaching them in Sunday class, which was uh, teaching a black child in Sunday school, also illegal according to the laws there in Virginia at the time. Uh, but General Jackson, again, somebody that is not pro-slavery or anything like that, but these people don't know that. They just saw a big rebel flag and decided to go ahead and burn it. And another thing that in, in that particular museum that was broken into, all kinds of letters, all kinds of documents, they weren't discriminating and, and going through and looking at these historic documents that, you know, you can't replace them. They are the original documents. They weren't going through as like, oh, was this somebody that was on the United States, the Confederacy? They really have a disdain for that era of history and have tried to burn it all down, which, you know, if my ancestors were enslaved in that period of time and a major talking point, a major reason for the war being when it was and, and the reason that it was fault. Uh, fought, I'd be pretty upset too, but I also wouldn't want to burn everything down in relation to it in the same way that the Jews, they don't want Auschwitz burned down. They want it to continue to exist as a reminder that the things that were done then were not okay. And so it bothers me that these people are so ignorant and short-sighted and they just have a, a lust for destroying things. When they the, the liberal talking point on this for the longest time has been, well, just keep it in a museum. Okay, fine, have it, but have it in a museum where it really belongs. And then you put it in a museum, this stuff was in a museum, and they went ahead and destroyed it anyway. So it's hard for me to buy into that, that that's really what you guys believe. You just want all of it removed. Anyway, uh not really connected to that, but one thing that I just had to mention before we move on, and we'll take a break right after this. One of the funniest things I saw in all of the demonstrations the other day, I mean, I just had to chuckle at this. There were several people I saw, I know two of these videos on Twitter, and I saw a couple of them just in passing on cable news the other day 
of people protesting and talking into the cameras and going, hey, just so you know, we're bringing this stuff to the uh, the rural communities. Y'all are next. And uh, one of them, I believe, was right outside a burning building. There's been so much footage over the past few days, it's hard to keep all of it straight. I believe that's where it took place. Uh, saying that, hey, y'all in rural America, y'all are next. Okay, good luck with that. Believe me when I tell you, in rural America, that would be one of the dumbest things that you could do. Because first of all, from the looting perspective, it's just dumb from a a cost versus, um, what is it? It's a risk versus reward analysis. Because in the country, there's an awful lot of people that have an awful lot of guns that are not going to ask any questions. You bust into their door, they will shoot you and not apologize for it. And when that takes place, I don't think, I think that that was a bunch of talk. I don't think they're actually going to do that. The thing that's so dumb about it is for the people that are looting, think about it this way. If you're a mob and you can kind of, because you're in a mob, get away with an awful lot and it'd be harder for people to arrest you, that kind of thing. Does it make more sense to break into a Best Buy or a Target or a Walmart that has 150 TVs or break into some redneck's house out in the sticks that has maybe two TVs that are probably a couple years old? Does that make any sense? Even if you remove the risk of shooting, do you think that the entire mob is going to break into, if you've got a mob of 20 or 30 people, like you had breaking into different uh, restaurants and, and businesses over this weekend, do you really think that each one is going to go to each individual house and break in until they have enough TVs for They're not going to do that. It's not, that's just not a thing that is going to happen. And so you juxtapose that with the fact that there is a very, very high probability that you will be met at the door with a gun, rightfully so, I might add. And there's virtually no chance of that happening at a Target or a Best Buy or another retail establishment. People just aren't going to do that. It's not going to happen. There's, the reward does not justify the incredibly increased risk that you will get your butt shot. And the thing is, if there were some kind of traveling mob that were going out to rural towns to do this, even if that were a reality, which it certainly is not going to be because they're not that organized, even if that were to take place, yeah, maybe that redneck would, would wind up getting overpowered because he's one guy with a gun versus, you know, 20, 30 people. But I guarantee he's going to be at least injuring some people on the way out. Like, the, the, the risk is just so, so high compared to what it is when you're robbing a retail store and the, the rewards are just not there. So there's that. But just overall, the sentiment... Believe me, I'm not saying that I condone this or anything. There are people that would love for you to try. I mean, people that have trained with, with guns their whole life, they've been shooting their whole life, and they're almost itching for an opportunity to defend themselves. Believe me, that's a really, really stupid idea for you to try to do something like that. Good luck with trying to take rural America. I've said for a long time, the Second Amendment and, and rule America itself is part of the reason that America has never been invaded successfully. Do you have any idea how hard it would be for an opposing military force to take over America? It would take decades. 
Think about it this way. Yes, we would be severely outgunned if, for example, Russia or China or something like that, if the military were gone and we had to rely specifically on citizen soldiers, we didn't have any defenses. Let's just pretend that the, all of the branches of the military didn't exist for a few seconds and it was just a bunch of people in their homes. Do you have any idea how long it would take to take Wetumpka and Prattville? I mean, it would take a week just to take those little bitty podunk towns. And they would have to do that for every little town in every state across the country. We have more, uh, (laughs) we've got more guns than people. It would not be easy to take America. And that's actually one of the reasons that I've said that the Second Amendment is so important, because, of course, it was designed to protect us from a tyrannical government, both foreign and domestic. So if we get invaded, just like that, uh, that famous quote from the Japanese general back in World War II asking why they had not invaded the mainland, he said, because there will be a gun behind every blade of grass, and he wasn't wrong. Yeah, we, we wouldn't have rifles, potentially, that are as powerful as theirs. We wouldn't have tanks or any of that. Believe me, it would still be a massive hassle to try to do that. And so the same principle applies here. You try to take violent riots out into residential areas, out in the the suburbs, or even further into the the sticks and the rural areas. That's just not a winning strategy. Uh, I tell you what, if they do that, if the rioters decide, okay, what we're going to do next, because rural America is going to be made to care, what we're going to do is we're going to take this out there I tell you what, that's going to solve the looting problem overnight. Because if all the looters did that, there would be no looters left. Every single one of them would be shot or injured, incapacitated in some way after breaking into one or two guys' homes. Maybe a few of them would get away with it, but I guarantee you that would solve the looting problem almost instantaneously. So, I tell you what, we'll go ahead and take a break here, and then we'll be back in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Lots to get to in this episode still. One thing with the riots and everything that's going on in the world, President Donald Trump did issue yesterday, actually right about the time that we were on the air, so that's the reason we didn't cover this yesterday. He issued a response to everything that's going on, basically gave what his thoughts were on it, and I thought he did okay. Probably give him about maybe a C plus or a B minus as far as grading it goes with these direct addresses to the country. He usually does fine. It's usually quite scripted. The thing that he hit on really, really hardcore was essentially the the law and order angle of it, which he's a tough guy. That's kind of a shtick. I get it. That's one of the main reasons that he got elected. People really underestimate, and I've been saying this from the very beginning, that the two main things that really drew people to Trump, the first one everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows that immigration was one of his primary things that he was trying to drive home. But the other thing, and this is where the whole strongman kind of idea comes in, whether or not you agree with it is really irrelevant. What I'm saying is that voters as a whole bought into it regardless of whether you think it's actually accurate or not, I have some questions about that as well. But the second part of that was law and order. And you have to remember that when the election was going on and right in the, from, you know, roughly middle of 2015 to 2016, that window of time 
was when we had seen riots somewhat similar to these happening over and over again, and people wanted it to stop, and they believed that somebody like Trump, who has this sort of swagger as as being a, a street brawler and wants to jump into the middle of the fight, loves confrontation, that kind of thing, that he's going to be the strong guy that puts a lot of this down. And he talked about that a lot in his speeches. I think the immigration thing may have been more prevalent, but you have to keep in mind that immigration is also a law enforcement issue. And so ultimately, if you wanted to sum it all up, I think that the fact that he presented himself as a law and order candidate, hey, let, let's get these people that are disobeying our laws, that was something that was very appealing to the voter. And this is really going to be, I think, a make or break moment for the president. And personally, I would have liked to see, I, I had a buddy of mine offer some criticism, which I thought was fair, that there should have been more of a, a feeling of empathy there, that he should have spent a little bit more time, because he did talk about it, but he should have spent a little bit more time talking about uh, what was going on with, with George Floyd and, and the community as a whole. Here's the thing, you can't spend that much time on it because there's not that much material on it. The second thing about that is, even though I thought, like I said, it was a fair criticism, maybe the president could have come up with something to spend a little bit more time on it. The thing is, it was such a cut and dry case. Like I was saying yesterday, virtually everybody was in agreement with this thing the second that it happened. Same thing with the Aubrey case. There was the thing that has been so interesting about those two cases and them happening in such close proximity to one another is that I don't remember anybody on any side of the aisle, conservative, libertarian, Green Party, socialist, Democrat, I don't know of anybody defending them in, in any significant way. I mean, not, nobody. No prominent conservative, nothing. And so it is amazing to me that this has become such a tense, hot-button issue that is largely partisan, despite the fact that pretty much everybody agrees, which is so odd. I guess that's the sort of vitriolic atmosphere that we find ourselves in. But this is something that virtually everybody agrees was wrong. I don't know of anybody that is questioning whether or not the police officer should have been charged for murder, that he needs to be held accountable because he is the law enforcement officer and, and all of those things. And so... I think that that's part of the reason that he didn't spend a ton of time on it because there's really no reason to hash this out. I mean, it's it's very cut and dry. And so when it comes to the empathy versus law enforcement, and I'm not saying this as a way to juxtapose the two and saying that if you're, if you're a law and order guy, you can't have empathy. And if you have empathy, you can't be in a law and order guy. I'm only saying this to point out that one is more important than the other. I'm not saying that you can't have both. I think that the best case scenario is that you do have both. And uh, I, blanking on the guy, I've already mentioned him once in the show, Mark Schaefer, maybe that's his name, the, the sheriff in Flint, Michigan, who, who put down his baton and marched with the guys. I think that's a perfect example of a blending of those two things. And I would have loved for Trump to have come up with something similar to that, and then he would have gotten an A-plus from me. But... If I have to pick between the two, if I have to pick between somebody that's going to be law and order or going to be more empathetic, I would definitely pick the law and order guy. Not saying you can't have both. I'm saying that that shows that law and order is the more important of the two qualities. 
And a great way to juxtapose that, a great way to compare the two, is to look at how Barack Obama handled similar riots and similar issues going on in his administration. Normally what he did was say, stay silent for a couple days, and then he would say something basically either giving a wink and a nod or full-on endorsing one side of the issue and just leaving it at that. Uh, whether it was him saying that cops acted stupidly or that Trayvon Martin, even though there were no police involved in that case, Trayvon Martin could have been my son. He would interject himself into local issues like that specifically to try to, uh, he always cast himself with whatever the left viewed as the correct position on that, which normally, at least before we knew, was the wrong position. Some of the things that he said in regards to Mike Brown in, in, in uh, St. Louis, what we found out later that Ferguson, Barack Obama's own Justice Department, had to admit that the whole hands up, don't shoot thing never happened and there was no proof that at any point the cops acted incorrectly in that. Barack Obama, even in his State of the Union, paid lip service to this and was saying that, well, these people that are rioting and protesting, I mean, granted, I'm paraphrasing here, don't. I don't think he actually used the word rioting, so I don't want to mischaracterize, I don't want to be unfair to President Barack Obama. Uh, he said that even those people, they're, they're just trying to get justice done and make sure that everything's fair. Again, I don't think that you can make the case that this is indicative of systematic racism or that you could even make the case for systematic racism existing on the whole. And yet, I, I don't know... When you come to that, that law and order, of course, is the better approach because I don't know how you spend time on any of those things when there's no proof that any of that actually existed. And Barack Obama, he did the opposite of that. He basically focused only on that and ignored the fact that law and order needed to be restored. I don't really love the idea, and I'm glad that he hedged it by saying, if necessary, I don't love the idea of America's streets having American military on it. That's a job for the police officers first. If absolutely necessary, the National Guard, which is largely controlled by their individual governments, or sorry, governors. And then and only then, when there is no other recourse, then a president comes in and solves the issue. But he should be the last line of defense, not the first. And so I do agree with the message that President Trump put out there that we have to have law and order, that the government's most important and arguably its only job is to keep its citizens safe. And so the fact that he said, if it comes to that, that's who I'm going to be. Okay, I applaud him for that. That, that was a good way to handle it. And what really bothers me, though, and what I do worry about this is a very politically risky move. Because now what the president has done is basically gone out and said to everyone, all right, the buck stops here. I'm going to be the best on law enforcement, okay, frankly? It, th that's the shtick that he was doing yesterday. And so if that is the case, then if these things spiral out of control and become a big mess, even if the president decides to sit back because he doesn't believe that the federal government should get involved, at least not yet, and it winds up being more the governor's fault or the mayor of that city's fault, President Trump's still going to get blamed because he put himself in the hot seat, which was not a politically smart thing to do, in my opinion. And people are not going to remember that it wasn't necessarily President Trump's call to quell whatever issue was going on there. 
They're just going to remember that he said, I'm going to fix this, and then he didn't fix that. So politically, I'm not sure it was the smartest thing to do. And the second thing on that, since the president is supposed to be the last line of defense, he might wind up getting blamed for a situation that he couldn't control. There's just, it's fraught with danger. And I think that he made himself somewhat vulnerable, probably would have held back on that. But the second part of this, I think, is the the more important of the two. With a... you may notice that right after that conference, he basically walked across the street, went over to St. John's Church, which is a very historically important church. It is a church that literally every president since James Madison has worshipped at. That's how old this church is. It has a lot of historic significance. And it was attacked and set ablaze the other night. The basement was actually on fire. I don't know exactly how they put that out, but thankfully it didn't seem like it had done way too much damage, but still, a church was literally burned. I mean, it again, it's ironic. I was saying this the other day. The very people that would have been furious, rightfully so, at something like the 16th Street Church bombing, that that was the rallying cry for the civil rights movement. The people that now claim to be the progeny, the, uh, the, the final form of the civil rights movement, are doing exactly the same thing that the civil rights movement stood against. Burning churches. That's what they're engaged in right now. They're doing the very thing that they claim to be against. But nonetheless, that's, that's where we were. And so they were burning the church the other day and President Trump goes off and he says a few words and is, has a picture taken of him in front of the church wearing a Bible. Or sorry, wearing a Bible. Holding up a Bible. Basically saying, look, this has got to stop. And he's right. I mean, some critics have brought up that President Trump has a lot of moral failings and because of that he basically doesn't have the right to use the Bible or the, the church to stand on. Look, you want to criticize the president's moral failings. I think that's fair game. I've done it myself quite a bit, actually. I did it with Barack Obama. I did it with George W. Bush. Criticizing a president's moral failings, especially when they start talking about issues of religion, if you think that they're being hypocritical, if you think that they're doing things that are inconsistent, that's fair game. It's okay to talk about that. What I think is not okay to talk about, what I think is incorrect when his, criti- when his critics have brought this up, is saying that he shouldn't have said anything, he shouldn't have done anything at all. Look, even if President Trump were an atheist and thought, oh, all this Jesus stuff is just ridiculous and I don't see how anyone can believe that, let's just say that that's who President Trump was. Not just somebody that's, let's say, not exactly super Christian or living a life like Christ. Somebody that was full-on atheist. I still wouldn't have a problem with him standing in front of the church and saying, look, this stuff has to stop. As a Christian person, If the mosque in Montgomery or a Jewish synagogue had been burned and I were in a position of authority, I would not hesitate at all to stand in front of and go, all right, this stuff has to stop. And then the Jew, if if there were Jews coming out or Muslims coming out, they were critical of me for doing that. I was like, yeah, but he eats pork. So? The fact that President Trump was willing to stand in solidarity with Christians, even though he you don't have to be morally perfect to be able to say it's not right that people are burning churches. And 
not only is Trump imperfect, he's way far from perfect when it comes to morals. I'm not sticking up for the man's moral track record at all. I'm not one of these people that says, well, I'm not electing a priest. I'm not electing a preacher. I think that's a dumb argument. I think that morality actually does make a difference when you're choosing a leader. But this is not what we're talking about right now. They're being critical of the president for standing in solidarity with Christians and saying that it's not right that people burn churches. They're saying that he shouldn't be allowed to comment on that because the guy is not the most Christ-like person in the world. Like, that's insane. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I don't understand how people can sit there and say that with a straight face. Because here's the thing, that's a that's a totally appropriate message for anybody in a leadership position, the mayor of D.C., if it had been Dianne Feinstein or Nancy Pelosi that had gone out there, uh, big abortion supporters, you can't possibly come up with a policy that is more anti-Christian than being in favor of abortion. If they had stood out in front of the church and said, look, this has got to stop, I'd say, okay, they were right. That's all that you need. They could do that. I may not agree with them on I may not agree with them on what being a Christian means. I may not agree with them philosophically, I may not agree with them politically. But I could stand with Nancy Pelosi or Elizabeth Warren or, or any of the, the pro abortion death worshiping cult that is the Democrat Party when it comes to abortion. With any of them that are saying, Yeah, people shouldn't burn churches, okay, I I stand with you on that one. Just like Abraham Lincoln, I will stand with any man. When he is right. That's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. And so I, I don't understand the criticism on those grounds. But I think the the big irony in all of this is that now the media has gone from saying, oh, church is non-essential. You, the, the risk of the coronavirus, it's just too big. We should shut down churches and we should keep them shut down. We have people like Mayor Bill de Blasio that are saying that you're going to permanently shut down churches if they even think about opening before the shutdown ends. Uh, people saying that you're not going to be allowed to go back to church for another 18 months. There are mayors across the country that have actually said that. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Democrats telling you that church is basically just this thing that you don't have to do. It's not important. Don't worry about it. It's a non-essential function. We just can just brush it under the rug because it's a non-essential activity. And then the second president, Trump, goes out to defend a church. How dare he? This is sacred. Is nothing sacred? He's using it as a backdrop to enhance his political career, to rally the base. Shut up. Look, either a church is sacred or it is not sacred. And I'm not talking about the building itself. I'm talking about the institution. Either religion is something that is important, that means something to people, or it isn't. You can't have it both ways. You can't criticize the president for his own moral shortcomings, which are abundant and many, and saying that he shouldn't do that because church is something that's sacred and should be taken seriously, and then also tell me that, yeah, we're just going to not do church for 18 months. And if you do want to do church, if you disagree with the time span with which we believe that church should be shut down, you're an evil, hateful bigot that just hates old people and wants them to die. No, I'm not going to accept that. Those two things cannot be true at the same time. Pick one. 
and I know that the reason that they can't pick one, I know that the reason they're actually inconsistent is because they never believed it in the first place. They've always hated church. They've always hated Christians. There is a seething animosity towards a biblical worldview by many, I won't say all, but many in the Democrat Party. I mean, they just recently kicked out a couple of Democrats that were pro-life that were pro-life because they were Christians. And so this idea that that's something to be respected and and you can't do that and, and this is something that is so important when all of a sudden it fits your narrative, I'm not buying into that. I'm sorry. It doesn't hold any water with me. You want to criticize the president on moral grounds? Okay, I might even join in. You may, you may come up with a good point. But you want to do so specifically saying he's not even allowed to stand in solidarity with Christians and say it's not right that they're burning churches now because you think that the guy, you know, has a pretty crappy record when it comes to things like marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and, and a whole litany of other sins. No, I don't, I don't buy that. I can't buy into your criticism of that. I, I just won't do it. I have absolutely no reason to believe there is even an ounce of sincerity in you when you do that. All right, so let's move on, because I, I did have a couple other things that I wanted to mention. Uh, let's see, what do we got up here next on the docket? Oh, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. For today's Daily Dose of Stupid, Joe Biden is going to be the source and the uh, main event when it comes to today's Daily Dose of Stupid because Joe Biden, who we've known for a while now, has no idea how guns work, would have absolutely no idea, would be completely clueless in some kind of a gunfight because of things he said in the past. He just reinforced that today with this clip. Check this out from earlier today. Because we also have to fundamentally change the way in which police are trained. Police are trained much more. Now, and by the way, there are a lot of people overwhelmingly it's African-Americans who have been victimized, shot, and a lot of other people are shot and killed in the Hispanic community and the white community. And the idea that instead of standing there and teaching a cop who is an unarmed person to be coming at him with a knife or something to shoot him in the leg instead of in the heart is a very different thing. There's a lot of different things that can change. <laughs> so there's a sleepy Joe Mad. Uh, <laughs> Joe Biden with the mask on telling people, all right, so the real problem, what we're going to do is we're going to fundamentally change how we train cops. In fact, one of the things we're going to do is when a guy's charging you with a knife, we're going to teach him, hey, you don't shoot him in the, you don't shoot him in the heart, you shoot him in the leg. Does he think Deadpool was real? <laughs> I mean, you've, if you've seen like that opening fight scene in Deadpool where Deadpool can basically put a bullet anywhere that he wants to, that uh, at one point he shoots three guys in the head consecutively to where he uses one bullet to take out three people at the cot and he just lines up the... I mean, I'm, I'm kidding myself, of course. There's no way that Joe Biden has seen Deadpool, and if he has, he probably doesn't remember it. But nonetheless, like, does he really think that that's how guns work? Now, granted, I'm a pretty dang good shot. I'm not the best. I'm not, like, you know, anywhere near competitive level. But I'm a really good shot. 
And I can go ahead and tell you now, do you have any idea how hard it is to hit a moving target? Okay, now instead of hitting a moving target just generically, try specifically going for the legs. That's darn near impossible. It's hard enough to hit a guy in motion when he is running directly at you and hit him center of mass. That's not easy to do if he's moving. Try, now imagine trying to do that and shoot a moving target with somebody's legs that are going up and down and constantly in that motion. It can't be done. I mean, maybe you just shoot in the general vicinity of a leg and happen to luck up and hit one. But that's one of the dumbest things that you could do because there's a good chance you're not going to eliminate the target and even a, a person that's not necessarily athletic can close distance like that. If you're 21 feet away from somebody, they actually showed a demonstration. I've seen this uh, online. The world's fastest quick draw expert. He had his pistol concealed. Uh, he has the, I think, the fastest quick draw record in his state. I don't know if he's like the world champion or anything. But this dude is fast. And they showed a guy that had to be pushing 380 charge him from 21 feet away, he closed the distance before the guy could get his gun out and at the ready to be able to shoot. Like, people that haven't taken safety courses or know anything about guns, they have no idea how difficult it is and what kind of danger you're in from somebody that, that has a knife that could close in on you. That is a life or death situation, and so now you not only take away from the fact... Do you think this guy has like five or six minutes to just stand there and carefully aim and uh, pick up on the motion and try to figure out where his leg is going to be when he pulls the trigger? That's impossible. Unless you're talking about a Hollywood movie, you cannot do that. And so Joe Biden, apparently, that's his, uh, that's his solution to this problem is that we just wing him and... Uh, hit him in the leg when that happens. No, when a when you pull a knife on a police officer, and that's the scenario that he just gave, he said whether they have a knife or they're unarmed, whether they're basically saying as long as they don't have a gun, that a police officer shoots them in the leg instead of the heart. Dude, you pull a knife on a cop, you have forfeited your own life. If you try to attack a cop, even just with your fist, you have forfeited your own life. People should know that ahead of time. That, that's common sense. If I pull a knife on a cop, there's a, a decent chance that I will die. And that's something that should be universally known to everybody, which is the reason that you shouldn't pull knives on cops. Because if they feel threatened, if their life is, in threatened, is being threatened, not only do they have the ability given to them by the law as law enforcement officers to do that, they have an inborn human right given to them by God to do everything to preserve their life. And as somebody who has worked with both guns and knives, I've actually been trained in both combat styles. I can tell you that you can kill somebody, if, if you're at close distance, you can kill somebody with a knife just as easily as you can with a gun. If you're close enough, it's actually easier to kill someone with a knife. And so the idea that, oh, well, they're not really being threatened if the guy's just charging with a knife, you can kill somebody with your bare hands pretty quickly if you hit them in the right spot. Or you can get close enough to them to disarm them. More people are killed every year in homicides by hands and feet than firearms. That's not me talking. That's the FBI statistics. More people die in homicides from that 
than guns. And so Joe Biden really is living in a fantasy world if he believes that this is in any way a viable option. I don't care how good a shooter you are, hitting somebody's legs while they're in motion like that, while they're coming at you with a deadly weapon, that's not going to fly. When you draw your weapon, and this is true of cops and it's true of everybody else, when you draw a gun, you better be prepared to fire it and kill. You don't fire to wing somebody. You don't fire to injure them. You fire to kill. You are eliminating the threat to your life, which is the reason that we should all be super hesitant to draw our weapons, and that's one of the things they will also teach you in a gun safety course. You don't draw the weapon unless you feel you absolutely have to and your life is in danger, but once you do, you shoot to kill. This isn't a movie you can't just take, you can't shoot to injure somebody. Now, maybe you wind up doing that and that stops them. But if you're a police officer in this situation, let's say it's just somebody with a pipe. It's not even a knife. What if that person's on drugs? You don't know who they are. If you shot them in the leg, they may not even feel it. They may keep going. That might not stop them at all if they're on the right stuff in the right amount of dosage. This is an insane proposition. And it shows Joe Biden has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Of course, that would, you know, not surprise anybody. There are non-lethal options for cops to use. There are. They have tasers. They have their nightsticks. There are non-lethal options that cops have, and they do use them when they feel that their life is not threatened. But once their life is threatened, once the life of other people around them are threatened, they have 100% authority, just like a regular citizen would be, to defend their own life with lethal force, and that's the way that it should be. The idea that we would, pardon the pun, handcuff our cops by saying, well, no, you can't use deadly force even if you are being threatened with deadly force, that's absurd. That would make a cop less able to defend himself than even the average citizen. Now, cops should have extra accountability over the average citizen. I agree with that. They should be more careful in their actions. They should be held to a higher standard than the average citizen. I agree with that as well. But once his life is threatened, all bets are off, and that is a God-given right. Once your life is threatened, you have the absolute divine-given right to defend your own life or the lives of other people. That's non-negotiable. And what is crazy about this is, even if you ignore the rights argument, if you're looking at it from the technical standpoint of how difficult it would be to hit somebody's legs in motion like that, is there really nobody, like even one of Joe Biden's bodyguards or something, that is listening to this and going like, look, Mr. B Vice President, uh, that's, that's a really bad idea. That's not how this works at all. Is there nobody around Joe Biden that could tell him, hey, not, not such, such a good idea? I don't know. It seems like there would be at least one person on his security detail that would be like, look, um, maybe don't say stuff like that anymore. But this should come as no surprise to us, right? Because Joe Biden has had a history of doing this. The guy has absolutely no idea how firearms work, what they're like. This is proof of this. This is Joe Biden back in 2013 basically telling his wife to just fire indiscriminately into the woods with a double-barrel shotgun. That's This is the world we live in, folks. So, Jill, if there's ever a problem, just walk out on the balcony here or walk out, put that double-barrel shotgun and fire two blasts outside the house. I promise you, who's ever coming in is not going to... You don't need an AR-15. 
It's harder to aim. It's harder to use. And in fact, you don't need 30 rounds to protect yourself. Buy a shotgun. Uh, well, I mean, that's ridiculous on a number of levels. If you've ever shot an AR-15 and a double barrel shotgun, first of all, Virtually every double barrel shotgun, there may be exceptions to this, I don't know, but every one that I've ever seen is break action, which means you've only got two shots. You can put in two shells and that's it, and then you're out. So the idea that, oh, uh, AR-15, it's harder to aim, it's harder to shoot. No, it's actually significantly easier to aim and shoot, especially if you've got a scope. But even if you're just using iron sights, which is what most shotguns would have, even if you're just using the iron sights and you don't have a scope on it, I've shot both. Believe me, an AR-15 is significantly easier to aim. And part of that is because of the function of them. Shotgun, you don't have to be quite as accurate because it's going to shoot out pellets that are going to cover a much wider range than a shot from a rifle is going to, and that's part of the reason that a, a rifle is just naturally easier to aim and shoot. And, and I have a shotgun. It's not a double barrel. It's a pump action, a single barrel. But, you know, I've shot both. And I can tell you, I can nail at 100 to 150 yards with an AR-15. I mean, I can get a bullseye or very close to it virtually every time. With a shotgun, I'm pretty good at about 60 yards. I'm pretty accurate. I've got ghost sights on mine. And I do pretty good at, you know, roughly that range. Or am I thinking of yards or feet? Sorry, I have no concept of distance, but <laughs> I believe it's 60 feet. Yeah, I believe, yeah I, 100 feet and, and 60 feet. That's the one that the range over in Wetumpka, Tri-County. By the way, go by, check them out. A really good organization over there. Uh, they, have a, they have 150 feet and, and 60 feet, I think, are the ranges that they have. So uh, it's 60 feet. That's I do pretty well, not quite as accurate as I am with the AR-15 at, at about at more than double the range with that one. So, the again, Joe Biden has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And what's really funny is that's actually a felony in Delaware, his home state. So if his wife were to do that and go out and shoot indiscriminately when the, she thinks somebody might be around the house with a double barrel shotgun, first of all, he said fire off two shots, which means what? Well, now she has to reload. She is out of ammo now. So if there was somebody that was actually threatening the, her and she just wasted her only two shots on warning shots and now has to reload, so she's in trouble. So it's A, impractical, but B, in the state of Delaware, that's actually a felony. If you fire around and you don't believe that your life is being threatened, that's a law in Delaware that that would actually be a felony for her to do that. So Joe Biden absolutely has no idea what the heck he's talking about. And in 2015, a guy actually tried to use the Joe Biden defense, saying that he fired a pistol up into the air to try to scare off people that were going to attack him. And they wound up convicting the guy. <laughs> He's like, but, but Vice President Joe Biden told me to do it. Like, yeah, doesn't matter. He's, you still can't do that. But what's funny about that is, and there was actually a guy that specifically cited Joe Biden as the reason for doing that, that in the media's mind, because it just shows the complete double standard. In the media's mind, Donald Trump going on TV and saying, hey, maybe you should ask your doctor about this new drug that we're having some success with in treating COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine, which is a drug that's been around for a really long time. Maybe you should ask your doctor about receiving that treatment. Uh, they say, oh, well, that means that the guy who drank 
literal fish tank cleaner, which is not even hydroxychloroquine. It's a different chemical. But that somehow was the president's fault. <laughs> and Joe Biden telling people to fire indiscriminately into the woods, even though there's a guy that specifically fired up into the air, citing him as the reason that he was allowed to do that. That's not Joe Biden's fault. Joe Biden's not being reckless when he says, hey, just shoot him in the legs. Here's another thing about that that I forgot to even mention. Where do you think that bullet goes if the cop misses? Like, let's say a cop actually does try to aim for somebody's legs or, or any shooter for, for you know, uh, just a regular citizen defending himself. What happens if you try to wing somebody, shoot him in the legs, and you miss? Well, unless you're in some kind of pasture or something like that where you've got ground i mean like some kind of soil or grass that sort of thing you, you could be in that scenario maybe you're in a park or something like that but let's say it's out in the the streets where some of this stuff takes place shoot on the concrete shoot on the asphalt what happens to that bullet it's going to ricochet especially when you pointed it at an angle you're aiming down what's going to happen to that bullet is it's going to ricochet now Hopefully, it doesn't wind up hurting anybody, but there's a chance that if there's anybody even remotely nearby, which there probably would be in, in those situations, probably near the attacker, like let's say that the cop is trying to stop a mugging and the guy starts coming after him. Well, if he starts shooting at the guy's leg and that bullet ricochets, there's a chance it could hit the victim. There's a really good chance that it winds up causing some kind of property damage or hurting somebody along those ways. You don't fire at the ground. That's incredibly dangerous. And so there's a really good chance that he winds up missing this guy's legs. And if he does, which is very likely, then he could ricochet and actually wind up killing somebody else. This is one of the most unsafe things that you could recommend that to be doing. But despite the fact that Joe Biden says crazy stuff like this, that would be incredibly dangerous. Oh, Joe Biden's not responsible for anything that happens when people do that. Yeah, what Joe Biden said was ignorant, even though... In Trump's case, telling somebody to see their doctor and ask them about this specifically new drug and see if it's okay for them to take it, wildly different from a guy hearing, hey, let me drink some fish tank cleaner, which we found out now was probably just his wife poisoning him and killing him. Uh, but the second half of that is that when somebody does exactly what Joe Biden said to do, not having to read between the lines or pretending that the drug that he was suggesting even, you know, just because it happens to sound somewhat similar to the ingredients in the fish tank clinger, when he actually does exactly what Joe Biden told him to do, which is firing off a gun in a random direction to try to scare off an attacker. Oh, that guy, we've got to, yeah, that, that was totally not Joe Biden's fault. The double standard here is just absolutely astounding. Remember that Joe Biden is the guy who was Obama's point man on gun policy, and now he wants Bob Francis O'Rourke who said, yes, we're going to take away your AR-15. This is the guy he wants to put in charge. He, he knows absolutely nothing about what he's talking about. And this just makes it abundantly clear. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. 
Again, for today, like we did yesterday, we're going to be foregoing our normal, regularly scheduled chaplain's report because I think that with where our country is right now, we could probably use a different message. Uh, Not that the messages in the chaplain's report normally would be inappropriate, just I think that maybe we can do something that's a little more timely, a little bit more specific. And one thing that I was thinking about the other day, because a lot of people have been asking me, what would the Bible have to say about this whole situation with the way that we're going to deal with our brothers and sisters in the church, the way that we handle and and put on a, a public face in front of other people to represent the church? What would the Bible have to say about this entire situation? Well, the thing is, obviously, we know that the Bible teaches in multiple different places, and I went into great detail on this on yesterday's chaplain's report that racism is obviously wrong, and that really stems from the idea that we are all brothers and sisters, that God created all of us and created us equally. You can see stories where racism does come into effect in the Scripture, where it it, it always paints it in a negative light. Uh, You could go back to the way that some of the, the Greek Jews back in the New Testament, were not being taken care of, and the church readily saw to and and made sure that they were going to be taken care of, and there there was not any uh, racial bias going on with who was being helped, the widows and the orphans that needed that assistance, that kind of thing. We have passages, for example, in the epistles in in, in Galatians, where it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, all are one in Christ. And so that's the obvious part of that, but I want us to really go deeper. When it comes to specifically what happened with George Floyd, Christians do have an obligation to speak out against evil. And I've been very happy to see and proud of a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters speaking out against this evil. And so that's one thing. I I do think that if you remain silent, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything wrong, or maybe you're just trying to stay out of it for different reasons. I don't think that automatically that means that you are standing silent in the face of evil, partially because everybody pretty much already agrees with this one anyway. But I do think that Christians have an obligation to call out the killing of uh, George Floyd or anybody else that has been abused by somebody in power, regardless of what the relationship is, regardless of what the skin color is. That's always the right thing to do. It's always right to speak out against evil things being done. However, I think that one thing that we need to keep in mind is that the virtue that racism is against, the reason that racism is wrong, is because it disturbs unity. You see, each vice, each thing that is talked about as a sin, it is in some way a perversion of something that works against a virtue. So, for example, lying is wrong because it is against honesty. Honesty is a value that God holds in high esteem. And because he does, something that would be going against that virtue, in this case, lying, would be something that is wrong. The same thing is true here. It's obviously correct to denounce racism. However, racism is not the only way in which unity can be broken. In the same way that lying is not the only way you could be dishonest. You could also cheat. You could also do a number of other things. In the same way, you could have somebody that absolutely is not a racist and holds no racial animus towards anybody, and yet still is not somebody that holds unity in high regard, or even somebody that works against unity in the church, somebody that causes there to be divisions. 
There could be no racial aspect to it whatsoever, but it would still not be upholding that virtue which unity, or sorry, that racism tries to break down, which of course, like I've said, is unity. And so we need to be concerned not only, not only with the sin of racism, but also with what we should be working toward, not just what we should be working to avoid. And what we should be working toward ultimately is unity. I want you to think about this verse that comes from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs verse 6, verses, or sorry, chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, and you can see there, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. Now I want you to think about that list. A God, a God that is the literal embodiment of love as we learn in Scripture. There are certain things that he does hate. He doesn't hate people. But he does hate some of the evil things that people do. And here is a list, not a comprehensive or exhaustive list, but a pretty good summary of certain things that God hates. And the way that it's worded right there in the Bible, the way that the poet, the author of Proverbs, in this case Solomon, at least he pins this portion of Proverbs, the reason that Solomon puts it this way says there are six things that, God's ha- that God hates, seven. He is putting emphasis on the seventh thing. And the seventh thing that he puts up is somebody who sows strife or discord, whatever your translation may say, among brothers. Somebody that stirs up trouble. Now, racism is obviously evil and wrong. The riots that have resulted from the protest have obviously been evil or wrong. doesn't mean the protests themselves were wrong, but it does mean that the riots, which have been connected to them, have obviously been wrong. Whether it was stealing, hurting people, whatever. There's a lot of evil associated with those riots. You see, what's interesting here, though, is that you could call out those things and denounce them, but you could also not be striving for that perfect bond of unity, which the Scripture tells us to try to aspire to. There have been an awful lot of brethren, and it has been very disheartening to see them go at one another and attack one another. And I understand, sometimes you've, you've got arguments, you've got disputes. If you have a brother or sister that you believe is in error, it is correct and biblically sound to try to call them out on that, to call them back to repentance. Those are things that are good. But I'm afraid that a lot of the fighting may be done in a way that is not beneficial and may even fall into the category that we see here in Proverbs, something that God hates, something that if it's something that's petty, if it's not something that is necessary or essential, if it's not something that is going to affect them or or not affect the the status of their soul, any of those things, because sometimes these things could result in some of those things. If you had somebody, for example, that was condoning evil behavior, let's say if you had somebody that was actually literally condoning Floyd's killer, and what he did, or you had somebody that was condoning the riots. Okay, well, that's a brother you need to talk to. That's somebody that has some serious underlying spiritual issues, condoning that which is evil. That, that's a problem. 
So I'm not saying there can't be legitimate arguments that crop up out of this, but I'm saying whenever we have any of these discussions, especially the difficult ones, we need to constantly remind ourselves that we are fighting not only against things like racism, but toward unity. And if we're not fighting toward unity, then the other fights don't matter all that much. If what we're doing is not helping us move towards unity and reconciliation, then what are we doing? That's what we're called to do ultimately, isn't it? Now, obviously, you don't go for fake unity. Like I just said, if there's a brother that has a real problem, if there's an issue there, then that is a discussion that needs to be had. You don't just ignore problems in the name of unity. But you also don't specifically go out of your way to try to stir up strife and controversy. And if it is a fight that is going to damage your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you have to ask yourself a serious question if that fight is actually worth having. Maybe it is. I think you have to judge that on a case-by-case basis. But if it's something that is causing a lack of unity, then you have to ask yourself, is the fight that important? Because if it's not, it's probably better to abandon it. And so I think that we would all do a great deal of service to one another and to the kingdom as a whole if we just keep this in mind and try to remember that we need to always be striving for unity. Watch out for people that aren't. Because if you run across people that are not striving for unity, that aren't looking for reconciliation, that do not want there to be this perfect bond of unity between people, whether it's racial issues, uh, whether it's how much money people make, any of those stupid, you know, trivial things that we have to worry about here on this earth. If there's ever somebody that is trying to create disunity, you need to be on the guard for those people because those people will cause a church to break down. It can only tolerate so much of it. And after a while, unless just about everybody, if not a vast majority, everyone is really needed to accomplish that goal of unity. And the thing is that we have to be aware of as well. It can be both intentional and unintentional, which means just because you're not specifically going out there trying to create disunity, trying to stir up strife, doesn't mean you aren't. And I say this from my own perspective because I have to ask myself this question from time to time. Is having this fight really worth it? Is doing this, if it's going to hurt my unity with my brethren, is it something that is so spiritually important that this fight has to be fought out? And so, even if you have the best of intention, that does not mean you're not contributing to a lack of unity. And so you really do have to examine yourself and ask yourself those questions. Because ultimately, if we are not striving for the perfect bond of unity, we are not living like Christ did, because he strived for unity between his followers and his disciples, but he also strove for unity with us, that ultimately the sacrifice on the cross, what that was supposed to do, what it was meant to do, is to bring us back into unity with both him and his Father. And if we have somehow missed all of that, 
if we somehow discard unity as something that's not that important or our own pride or being right or whatever else it is that is motivating us to have a fight that doesn't really matter or to sow some kind of discord among the brethren, whether it's because we see them as as not part of our group or whatever else it is, then we're not living up to the calling of being like Christ. That should be a sobering thought to all of us, that that is something that we are held accountable to as well. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.